Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. I'd like to wish all the mothers out there a very happy Mother's Day. For my own mom and grandmothers who have gone before, my forever gratitude for making me the person I am. That's right, I blame you. Just kidding, I love you all so much and I think of you every day. We've got a terrific show for you. Coming up soon, we'll bring you an interview with Judy Penn Shillock, author of The Hangman's Noose. For our readers on the run, I'll also be reading Live Free or Die, a short story by Penn Shillock that first appeared in World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. Over the next few weeks, we'll be featuring a number of your favorite authors. On May 20th, we'll speak with Russell Parkway, The Demeter Code. On May 27th, popular celebrity host Cyrus Webb will join us on the pod. On June 3rd, Lisbeth Meredith will talk with us about her memoir, Pieces of Me, about her years-long crusade to rescue her kidnapped daughters. On June 10th, we'll bring you Michael Jecks, prolific and hugely popular author of historical mysteries. So, be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on any of these fantastic episodes. I hope you've been reading... So many books and so little time, just like that old Twilight Zone episode. In this manic universe we're all swirling about in, there never seems to be enough time for all the great books we want to consume. That's why I bounce around between formats. I read on my Kindle, on my phone, in print, and lately, as often as not, I read via Audible. It's a terrific way to indulge in the hottest books of the day. And speaking of the hottest books, just this morning I finished listening to a brand new title, The Hellfire Club, by CNN's own Jake Tapper. Set in post-war America, The Hellfire Club is an action-packed political intrigue involving the shenanigans surrounding tail gunner Joe McCarthy and his fixer Roy Cohn. A truly relevant novel, The Hellfire Club is well-written and, not surprisingly, extremely well-read in Jake's own familiar voice. I highly recommend it. We've got a really beautiful Mother's Day going on here in the North Country. The sun is shining and the birds are singing, so sit back, all you moms, close your eyes, and I'll bring you this outstanding crime story by Judy Penn's Shalak, titled Live Free or Die. Live Free or Die, From World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. Editor's Note In this gripping tale of green suits and green-eyed monsters, Judy Penn Shillock shows us that freedom, like revenge, is sometimes best served cold. The first time any of us met Jack, he was wearing a dark green suit. That seemed odd to me. It wasn't St. Patrick's Day, and the office attire was mostly business casual, with an emphasis on the casual. This was especially true in cubicle hell, where an overworked staff of four plus supervisor made collection calls and routinely cancelled insurance policies for non-payment. Later, Jack would confide in me that it was his only suit— Wear a green suit and everyone assumes you must own a black one, a brown one, a blue one, he had said, and I had to admit it made sense. But the first time I met him, my only thought was, green suit, can't be from around here. I should have known Jack was going to be trouble right from the beginning. In my defense, I was 21 to his 31, and until a few months earlier when I'd been dumped for a girl with the improbable name of Anke, I'd had the same boyfriend throughout high school. Anyway, my inexperience with men aside, there was something riveting about Jack. It was more than his stature. Six foot two with the build of an athlete. You could imagine six-pack abs and muscled thighs. More than the penetrating stare of eyes, a bluish shade of tanzanite verging on violet. 
It was as if he wore his charisma like a suit of armor and polished it up every morning. Jack came to the company as an efficiency expert, imported from the U.S. head office in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to the Canadian head office in Toronto, the suburb of Don Mills, to be exact. Apparently, we were inefficient at collecting monies owed. I could have told them it was because we tended to empathize with the insured, if only because we were all stone-broke ourselves. Thanks to our minimum wage jobs and age-rated auto insurance, most of us couldn't afford to pay the premiums, let alone own a car. Extending payment terms for a week or two? Where was the harm in that? My first mistake was agreeing to have lunch with Jack, though, to be fair, he asked all five of us in the credit department, each on a separate day. My day of the week was Friday. Jack made me feel as though he'd saved the best for last. He drove a midnight blue Chevy pickup with a front bench seat and extended cab. The license plate included the message, Live Free or Die, which Jack informed me was the state motto of New Hampshire. I preferred Ontario's more mundane, yours to discover, but I'll admit to being somewhat biased. I suppose I was expecting a sandwich at the local deli, or maybe fish and chips from Captain Sam's, given it was Friday. Both were just south of the office, and regular hangouts for many white-collar workers in the area. But Jack drove west on Eglinton. Clearly we were going to take more than my allotted hour for lunch. Molly tells me you like authentic Mexican, Jack said, not taking his eyes off the road. I was in Toronto a few years back. I remember a decent place on Young Street. Viva something or other. Molly was my supervisor. I wondered how the subject of my food preferences had come up. Molly told you I like Mexican food? Jack grinned, his teeth flashing in the sunlight. Let's just say I was curious about you. The Mexican restaurant was no longer in business, but that didn't stop Jack. He navigated the truck into a tight parking spot along the street, hopped out, put change in the meter, opened my door and led me down to a British-style pub a couple of blocks away. It's not Mexican, but I was here a couple of nights ago, he said. Typical pub food, but a good atmosphere and a nice selection of draft beer. I don't like draft beer, but the idea of dining out in a pub on a workday lunch hour had a certain charm. I could go for an order of bangers and mash, I said, trying to demonstrate my worldly knowledge of tavern fare. So could I, Jack said, and chuckled softly. I got the distinct impression we weren't talking about the same thing, and found that I didn't necessarily mind. It had been a long time since Norbert had dumped me. Lunch lasted a couple of hours, during which time I found myself telling Jack the story of my life, or at least the Reader's Digest version. I even told him my real name was Emerald, although everybody called me Emmy. It was only after we were headed back to the office that I realized he hadn't shared anything about himself. "'How long are you going to be in Toronto?' I asked. "'For a while.' I'm starting with the credit department, but there are inefficiencies in all areas of the company that need to be identified and resolved. So, you're moving here? Jack nodded. I have a one-year contract. The company found me a rental apartment near Fairview Mall, but I'll be doing surprise audits in other cities now and again. I'll also be going home to New Hampshire for a few days every three weeks or so. To be honest, I'm already homesick. It's lonely not knowing anyone. You've met people in the office, though, haven't you? I mean, besides those of us in credit. Oh, sure, but it's not like anyone's really opened up to me. Not the way you did, Emerald. Emmy, I said, embarrassed, and you're just being kind. I probably bored you to tears. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I'd like to get to know you quite a bit better. And that's the way it started. We spent every moment of the weekend together, walking downtown for hours, taking in the CN Tower, the Eaton Center, Yorkville, Young Street, City Hall, both the old and the new. 
We made plans to visit the Royal Ontario Museum, the Art Gallery of Ontario, even the Badashoo Museum. Jack's thirst to see and experience everything was contagious, and I found myself being a tourist in my own hometown and loving every minute of it. We were driving back to his place late Saturday night when he mentioned it might be best if we kept our friendship a secret. Not that we have anything to hide, he said, but why fan the flames? I thought about my co-workers, gossips, each and every one of them, and my supervisor, Molly, who didn't appear to care much for Jack, likely because she felt her job was in jeopardy, and decided he was probably right. Okay, I edged myself closer to the passenger door, not sure what else to say. Why don't you slide over here, Emmy? Jack said, patting the seat beside him. Otherwise, folks might think we're married. It was about six weeks later when Molly came to my desk, carrying a card and a large brown envelope. Jack was back home in New Hampshire for a few days, returning midweek. I missed him. I'm collecting for the Jack and Jill shower on Wednesday, she said, handing me the card and envelope. Whatever you can afford. I looked at the card, which had an image of a man and woman holding hands and standing under a white umbrella, a glittery rainbow behind them. It was the first I'd heard about a Jack and Jill shower, but then again I'd kept pretty much to myself since getting involved with Jack. It was safer that way. Who's getting married? I asked. Molly gave me an odd look. Well, Jack, of course, and what's totally ironic is that his fiancée's name is actually Jill. I thought he would have told you that day you and he went out to lunch. You were gone long enough. Say, you weren't. Of course not, I said, fighting the urge to throw up. It's just that Jack developed a bit of a reputation as a womanizer the last time he was here, she said. Of course, that was five years ago. He might have changed. It was the way she said it more than what she said that made me realize why Molly didn't care for Jack, and it had nothing whatsoever to do with job security. Five years ago, Molly had been me. He slept with you, didn't he? Jill spoke so quietly I almost convinced myself she didn't say it. I took a deviled egg from the paper plate on my lap and popped half of it into my mouth, trying to look nonchalant. Didn't he? Jill said again. Her otherwise pale cheeks had bright red splotches on them, as if someone had painted a clown's face on her. Jack was standing at the other side of the room, his back to us. He was laughing at something one of the sales guys had said. He hadn't said one word to me since he'd been back hadn't given me so much as a passing glance. I didn't know about you, Jill. You have to believe me. I'm not the kind. I know what it feels like. Jill looked over at Jack, who was still kibitzing with the sales team, then back at me. We need to talk, she said, somewhere private, tonight when Jack's out drinking with his buddies. I agreed to meet her for dinner at a local Italian restaurant known for its great food, good wine, and generously proportioned booths, an entirely sensible combination of public and private. After all, I had no idea what Jill wanted to discuss with me, but I was pretty sure she wasn't going to ask me to be in the wedding party. Let me start by saying I believe you, Emmy, Jill said. We were sitting near the back of the Italian restaurant, our choice given it was a Wednesday night and there was plenty of available seating. We'd ordered a liter of house red and a basket of bruschetta to split as an appetizer. The whole thing felt a bit surreal. I appreciate your taking my word for it, I said, fingering a piece of bruschetta. I didn't have the appetite to bite into it. It's not like you were the first and you're not likely to be the last. Jill studied the diamond ring on her left hand. I suppose I thought once we were engaged, Jack would stop misbehaving. How long have you been engaged? I asked. Three months. About a month longer than you've been sleeping with him, if my math is correct. It was. You're still willing to marry him? I suppose you think that's pathetic. 
I thought about my initial reaction when I found out about Norbert and Anker. Devastation, certainly, but also a sense of determination and a rational desire to win Norbert back, if only to be the dumper versus the dumpee. I understand what it's like to invest years in a person, I said. You don't want to think it was a big waste of time. Jill nodded. That's exactly how I felt before we got engaged. But now I'm done. Finished. You were the last straw. No offense. None taken. Good. Now the way I figure it, Jack owes both of us more than just an apology. What I'm wondering is, how would you like to get even? Get even with Jack? Jill nodded again. You see, I have a plan, and I need your help to pull it off. There are times when you have to commit a crime to prevent an even bigger one. At least that's what I tell myself when I can't sleep at night. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. Suffice it to say that if we had implemented Jill's original plan, we both could have done 25 to life. What did either of us know about guns? As much as I hated Jack in the moment, and as much as I commiserated with Jill, I wasn't willing to go to prison for either of them. Which is exactly why I came up with my own plan. I never said it was perfect. Live free or die. Jill and I spoke the rehearsed lines in perfect unison when Jack walked through the door. We were standing in Jack's apartment, and judging by the shocked look on his face, he wasn't expecting to find his fiancée and mistress waiting for him. What are you two talking about? Live free, I began. Or die, Jill finished. Free of the cushy job that allows you to travel across North America and pick up unsuspecting women, I said. Women who don't know that you're already spoken for. Free of all your money. Well, actually... Free of anything you own of value, Jill said. I just wish the pickup truck was black. I've never been a fan of midnight blue. You can always trade it in, Jill. Maybe get a nice little sports car, I said. A black one. I'm not sure I'm following, Jack said, but it was clear from the hint of perspiration forming on his forehead and upper lip that he was getting the gist of it. It's actually very simple, I said. Tomorrow morning, you're going to hand in your resignation, citing personal reasons. Then you're returning to New Hampshire on your own dime. Except you won't have a dime or a vehicle come to that, Jill added, because you're going to transfer all of your money into my personal bank account and your vehicle ownership into my name. Don't worry, we'll come with you so you don't screw it up. What you're asking is preposterous, Jack said his face flushed. Why would I do any of that? Because, if you don't, I'll have to tell upper management how you took advantage of your position of authority, how you coerced me into bed. I leaned back into the wall. Perhaps I'll even hire a lawyer, file a sexual harassment suit. The company would love that. Maybe I wasn't completely upfront with you, Jack said, but there was no coercion. He turned to face Jill. As for the money in the truck, you're delusional if you think I'm just going to hand it over. It's called payback time, Jack, for being a liar and a cheat. Jill folded her arms in front of her. Consider it a prenup without the nuptials. Of course you're perfectly free to ignore the live-free part of this plan, I said. That got Jack interested. What happens if I decide to do that? Ignore the live-free part. Ah, said Jill, that's where the or die part comes in. Jack had the nerve to laugh, the smug son of a bitch. You too? You're threatening to kill me? How do you propose to do that? Let's just say you'd never see it coming, Jill said. I nodded and tried to look menacing. I'm not sure Jack believed us, but in the end he chose to live free. Who wouldn't, given the option? After all, living free had its benefits. At least you were living, without the threat of death hovering like a dark shadow. There were some negotiations, of course. I like to think we were reasonable in our demands, and the reality is that, despite his philandering ways, Jill still wanted to marry Jack, especially since she'd found out she was pregnant. 
I didn't pretend to understand. Surely she and the baby would be better off without him. But it wasn't my place to judge. We eventually agreed Jack could keep his job. Jill would move into his apartment. They'd get married earlier than planned, given Jill was now with child. And that way we could both keep an eye on him. Me at work, her at home. Ultimately, it would mean more money for Jill and the baby, since his paycheck was going to be directly deposited into her personal bank account. All Jack had to do was stay on the straight and narrow. Some men never learn. Seriously, Molly said, a green suit at a funeral? I didn't tell her it was Jack's only suit. Maybe when they'd dated five years earlier, he'd had other suits. Suits no longer in style, or maybe too big or too small. Maybe he'd lied to me and had a closet full, ready to pull out for a special occasion. It hardly mattered. I don't mind the green, I said, more for something to say than anything else. We both stared at the open casket, at Jack's hands clasped loosely together in front of his stomach. The mortician had done a good job of disguising the damage from the accident. I could have said Jack looked at peace, but I didn't believe it. A true tragedy, Molly said, Jack falling onto the subway tracks like that. She gave me an odd look, eyebrows raised, lips pursed. Do you, do you think he'd been drinking? I don't know, and I didn't. All I knew was that the ruling of accidental death would haunt me forever. Jill was sitting in a pew at the side of the chapel, a black lace shawl draped loosely around her shoulders, her face bent down in prayer. For a moment, I thought she glanced my way, but I couldn't be certain. The next time I looked, her eyes were averted, a solitary teardrop finding its way down her face. The End and that has been Live Free or Die by Judy Penn Shalak. And now we're going to bring you an interview with Judy. Judy was a full-time freelance writer for more than a decade. Her articles have appeared regularly in U.S. and Canadian publications. She's also the editor of Home Builder magazine and the senior editor of the New England Antiques Journal. Her first mystery novel, The Hanged Man's Noose, came out in September 2015 from Barking Rain Press. Her short story, Plan D, is included in the Toronto chapter Sisters in Crime anthology, The Whole Shebang, too, which came out in November 2014. You can find Judy at www.judypenshalak.com. Good morning, Judy. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Donna? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast. I'm really glad to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. Great. I know that you've got a bit of a cough. Don't worry about that. Uh, I think it's really going around and people understand. Um, but I wanted to talk to you because you're starting to acquire quite a list of titles to your credit now. Um, you've got a number of books, The Hangman's Noose, A Hole in One, Skeletons in the Attic, Attic, sorry, and two of these are part of the Glass Dolphin mystery series. Um, the Hanged Man's Noose and A Hole in One are both part of that series. Uh, how did you come up with the title for that series? Um, the Glass Dolphin? Yes. Yeah, um, so the Glass Dolphin's an antique shop on um, the historic main street of a small town, and um, it's actually... The, the shop was actually named after the owner's first antiques find, which is a pair of Boston and Sandwich um, glass dolphin candlesticks. And such candlesticks really do exist. Mm -hmm. uh, a pair recently sold for a little over four thousand dollars. So wow. they're they're quite and they're quite beautiful. So I, I'm I'm in the um, I edit an antiques magazine, so I'm fairly familiar with that world. And I just always thought it would be a kind of a cool thing to own and a good name for an antique shop. Yeah, and it really, it, it brings about images of uh, small town elegance kind of and uh, and puts, I would think it would put readers right into that kind of situation um, where yeah, a sleuth a sleuth could have a lot of fun in that area. Can you tell us a little bit about your protagonists and, and uh, 
what they get up to in the Glass Dolphin series? Sure. So it actually switches. In the first book, the protagonist is uh, Emily Garland, and she's a, uh, a journalist um, that comes to the small town from, she leaves Toronto and goes to the small town um, under the proviso of editing a, um, a community newspaper, but her actual assignment is to find out what a uh, developer is doing in that town. He's known to, um, you know, build big box stores, and of course the townspeople don't want anything to do with a big box store on their historic main street. And you know what, that's a kind of a, a, a theme that we see even in smaller communities within a big city like Toronto, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sort of, and, and it was happening in the town that I lived in where you, you were seeing, you know, small businesses sort of getting pushed aside for the big box retailers. So um, Emily kind of champions that story. And then um, Arabella Carpenter, who is the owner of the Glass Dolphin Antique Shop, is sort of her second fiddle, I guess. Mm -hmm. But in a hole-in-one, Arabella is the lead, and Emily takes sort of a side role. And in the third book that I'm writing, they're going to share the stage. Okay, so, and what's the, what's the title of the third one? Can you reveal, or are you still in the uh, working? The one that I'm writing is, uh, no, because, you know, I'm so superstitious. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I can understand that. That's why I wanted to give you a note there. I'm kind of the same way. <laughs> too early is too early, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what it is, it, and, and titles are so, um, they change, right, as you're working, you think, yes. oh, this one will be good, and then, you know, somewhere down the road, you think, no, this one will be better, so... Um, I like to sort of keep it fluid in time. Yes, and you trip over a situation as you're writing. This has happened to me with absolutely every novel and with most stories. At some point, you trip over a situation in the story that is the title, and it can't be anything but that, you know? So you, exactly. really, do, you really do have to wait and let the thing flesh out a little bit. Um, what are some of the challenges that you find uh, unique to series writing as opposed to standalone? starting a standalone, so I, I'm not one that can really speak to the standalone itself. Um, what I would say is, in the series, there's there's pros and cons. The, the pros are obviously that after you've written one of the books, you know the characters well enough that you don't have to sort of recreate them from the beginning. You know if they mm -hmm. like potato chips or, you know, they'd rather have a chocolate bar. You know things about them mm -hmm. that you don't know when you're starting out, right? Um, but the negative of that, of course, is that you know things about them, so certain things you might want them to do just wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. right? So so you are sort of boxed into um, a world that you've created, and, it, it, you know, it, that's, I guess, like, like I said, there's pros and cons. But mm -hmm. It's certainly easier, I think, once you have a series to get a bit of a following because people are looking forward to finding out what happens to those people. People love their characters, don't they? They really, truly they do. do. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you, you've hit on something, um, being boxed in by what you know about your characters, because being true to character is so important. It doesn't mean that your character can never stretch or grow, but it's got to be um, believable. It, it realistic, yes. absolutely. Yeah, they have to be, you know, they have to be doing something. Like, if your character's a bit of a prude, she can't suddenly go on a, you know, a crazy dating spree or something. Not right? without a very good reason. There has to be a pretty good setup there, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so there is that. But but they, but they but you make a good point, Donna, in that people, they do also have to grow. We do, as human beings, grow as we learn um, things, as we encounter things in life. We change mm -hmm. because of those, those circumstances. So we have to allow our characters to change as well. And I think any good book... The characters do change a little bit, at least. I agree with you completely. I agree with you yeah. completely. In fact, uh, my husband, Alec, and I have talked about this many times. We were big fans of the Seinfeld series, and we love a lot of uh, funny series and serious drama series. But the one drawback we saw with the Seinfeld series that we still to this day talk about, those characters didn't grow. And it was a real drawback compared to many other similar style series where... You know, you could watch the character development. That's, you know, that's a good point. And I make that, I don't know if you've ever watched the series NCIS with Mark Harmon. I'm a mm -hmm. huge N NCIS fan. As a matter of fact, I've actually named my dog Gibbs. So <laughs> <I'll tell you laughs> something. But, um, 
all of the characters on that show have grown over the years, except for Abby, who's the forensic um, person. And she's still, you know, at 45 years old, running around with knee socks and pigtails. And mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't work anymore. Do you know? And like 15 yeah. years ago, it was cute. But now she just looks ridiculous. And yes. I think, how, how did the writers, who are really, they're quite brilliant writers, the stories have stayed fresh for, you know, almost 15 years. But how did they miss that? You yeah. know? And, and I, I do, I think it's, a, it's an epic fail on mm-hmm. in that one within that series. Yeah, there has to be something. I agree with you on Seinfeld as well. Yeah, there has to be something. There has to be something. And I'm not taking away from Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld was brilliant, and he created a real work of art around the lives of these characters. But he did, to me, it was, as you said, an epic fail that they didn't grow. And that was actually kind of his point. He did that deliberately, so it wasn't a mistake. But to me, it was a mistake because I love to see character development. Now, you're also a writer of many short stories, including um, Live Free or Die, which is the featured story on today's episode and appeared in our own World Enough and Crime by Carrick Publishing in 2016. Uh, You've had stories in the Sisters in Crime, the whole Shebang series, and uh, as well as a number of other anthologies. What draws you to short story writing, and what are some of the challenges of short fiction as opposed to longer fiction? short stories incredibly difficult to write. I, I really admire um, those that are prolific in the field because for me, it can take me weeks to write one one short story. It takes me less time to write three chapters of a book than it does to write one short yes. story. Because you, you like when you're writing a, a novel, you have all the time in the world to kind of make the characters. Um, come alive, you have the setting, everything kind of just rolls out nice and smooth. You don't have that luxury in a short story. You've got to kind of hook people right away. Um, you've got to, you can't have too many people in the story or it's too complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's got to have a satisfying ending and, and it has to be fair. And so there's, all, there's so many components to short story that I find really, really challenging. Um, and yet I keep wanting to do them because I I enjoy the form. I read a lot of um, short mm-hmm. crime fiction. I, I enjoy it. Um, you know, for me, if I'm having a bowl of soup at lunch, it's easy to just read one story. And, yes, yes. And, and I think a lot of people right? are so finding... I've, I've always uh, got an anthology on the go, right? Um, in addition to, like, whatever else I'm reading. But, yeah, so uh, it's, it's just one of those things that I keep wanting to do it. And I'm, I'm not sure I've quite mastered it, but I'm, you know, I never give up. (laughs) Well, you've hit on it, I think, for a lot of us. Most writers will tell you, listeners, that short stories are, in many ways, more difficult. The only thing that makes them a tiny bit easier is the fact that they're short, but um, other than that, the actual crafting of them is quite difficult. Um, It's a true art, and I found that it helps in my other writing. Maybe one of the reasons we're drawn to them is because they do challenge us. Yeah, I think that's challenge us and so that is fun and also there's something like like in live free or die for instance that that premise of the young girl being sort of deceived by the older guy and whatever mm-hmm. and you can say whatever you you can say whatever you want judy about that story because we will have already heard it by the time you're speaking so oh, by all means okay. there's no spoiler worries <laughs> that that uh, that particular story actually um based on a true event in my life. I actually was a young girl that was, you know, fell for a ridiculously, a man that wasn't very nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so many, many years later when I wrote the story, it was quite cathartic and quite fun to, you know, I like to say Jack is probably still alive somewhere, but not in my story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not in your story. And I, I think that's something a lot of women who were once young girls can relate to. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And it was, and really, I think at that oh, was a more innocent time than it is today as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think today, somebody twenty-one may not be quite so wide-eyed as as my Emmy was, um, but maybe they would be. I don't know. Um, yeah. But anyway, the the point is that that particular premise worked for a short story, but you could never turn that into a novel. It's just not enough. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. That's right. The time together was too short, quite literally. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Now, you've also worked on magazines, and uh, tell us a little bit about that before I get on to my next question. Yeah, so I started freelance writing for magazines in 2003. I left my um, job in the corporate world. I was actually in the accounting field, so big, big Oh, leap. same here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big leap. Couldn't do the whole credit and collections thing any longer, and said, I think I'm going to try freelance writing. And I just came to it at a really good time. 2003, there were still lots of print media, um, you know, internet was pretty in its infant stages, so there wasn't a lot of online stuff. Um, yeah, so I, I developed a pretty good reputation, wrote for a lot of different types of magazines, lots of trade magazines, but also magazines like Canadian Homes and Cottages and those types of things. Uh, and I've been the senior editor for New England Antiques Journal since 2007, so that requires editing and writing, assigning stories, mm-hmm. you know, basically, you know, looking after the freelance budget. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on behind that title. <laughs> and then again, that ties to to your Glass Dolphin series nicely it too. It dovetails. Yeah, yeah. The so ang- angle is there, and even in the Marketville series, there's a there's a minor antiques art um, uh, thread through. So that there's as well. there's a credibility of knowledge on on your part when you're writing those, which uh, which I find quite appealing. Yeah. Um, you kind of came to the journey in a similar way that I did. For me, it was 1998 when I, I realized that the clock was really ticking, not so much my biological clock, but my artistic clock was ticking. And I had to start taking my, my writing seriously. Um, for you, it was 2002 and you started with a 10 week creative writing course, I think. Yes, can, I did. can you tell us about in one big sweep, can you tell us about the journey from that course to now? You know, like I, I did some short stories in the creative writing course, and I started getting a couple things published, and and then, you know, always in my mind, and I think anybody that's written a book will say, I always wanted to write a book, I just didn't know if I could do it, right? And, mm-hmm. and so finally, I went to Bloody Words Toronto, and I think that was 2012, and I've been sort of mucking about with a, a book. But when I left there, I said, that's what I'm going to do. Like, Mm -hmm. that conference changed my life. It absolutely did. Um, Because I went there as a kind of a, "Mm, one day I'm going to write a book kind Mm -hmm. of person to actually writing a book. Yes. Yes. I think a lot of people who are familiar with Bloody Words, which was a a wonderful crime writers conference that used to take place every year in Toronto, and uh, I think it was also held in some other places once or twice, but uh, it was primarily in Toronto. And it changed the lives of a lot of Canadian writers because um, just the networking and, and getting to know what it really takes to be a writer, attending those panels and hearing those writers speak, for me it was a, a real revelation. It really was. And, and I think, too, like meeting authors that had already achieved some degree of Yes. And realizing that they were just regular people, mm-hmm. right? You know, they weren't these, I don't know, like movie stars. Or they were just, no. I remember meeting Vicki <laughs> Delaney, and she was like so down to earth, right? And I yeah. was like, oh my gosh, that's yeah. like Vicki Delaney, and she's like sitting here talking to me, like, who's, you know. So it, it just, I think it just sort of took the mystery out of it a bit and, and made me realize, yeah, I can do this. I mean, it's hard work, it's not ever easy. No, me, it's anyway. never easy. Never but, easy. Um, but you but, demystified uh, the art of mystery writing. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so I would say that's kind of, I would say the turning point for me really was Bloody Words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can definitely understand that. Now, you've had a fair bit of critical acclaim for your novels. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of it here for our listeners. For example, Skeletons in the Attic is a thought-provoking, haunting tale of decades-old deception. In this first of a new series, Judy, that's you, reveals herself to be a masterful storyteller, weaving a page-turner that hooked me from the start and kept me intrigued until the stunning finale. And that's Annette Dash- Dashavi of USA Today, best-selling author of the Zoe Chambers mystery series. Hole in One has been called a captivating page-turner. And um, what does it do to you as a writer and to your art to know that it is being well-received? How does it well, inform your future writing? It's, I mean, it's everything. Let's face 
we do, as authors, put our our lives out there in a way, right? I mean, these are our, our kids almost. Yes. <laughs> and so you want you want people to, you know, like the old Sally Field when she won the award. You like me? You really like me? <laughs> I know. Like poor that. Sally. She <laughs> took know, so much flack for that. Like Sally. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's good, and it, it in knowing that like people that you admire, like Annette. Um, you know, her series is wonderful. She's won all kinds of awards. You know, for her to say something wonderful is, you know, you, you can't put a price on that. And mm-hmm. and it also takes the sting out of it because the reality is, you know, I don't know about you, but I read my reviews on Goodreads and Amazon. And, you know, I, I can remember with Skeletons in the Attic, I had like five star, five star, five star, five star. And I was like riding this wave of five star reviews. And then one day there was a one star and I was like, what? And was it a vandal review? Because I, I suspect that many of those one-star reviews are what I call vandal reviews. Um, I don't know if this is the case with your one-star. You can tell us honestly. We won't tell anyone. But um, many of them that I've seen on author pages, you can tell they haven't actually read the work. Because in some cases, I've read the work, and I can tell that uh, that reviewer is a vandal, you know? was. Uh-huh. Was that the case with no, yours? No, my guy read the book because he, he, it kind of made me laugh in a way. And he, he wrote, you know, this wasn't a bad book. And I actually finished it and kind of enjoyed it. But it didn't deserve five stars. So I'm giving it one to lower the rating. Oh, oh, well, that was, <laughs> that was not fair game. That's not fair game I at all. I, I, I was kind of had to laugh. And then I, I, never, I, I sent this, this, this thing out to the Sisters in Crime group and said, I got my first one-star review, and they're like, oh, join the club, that's great. Like, I know. <laughs> it's like, a badge because... of honor, much like rejections from publishers and agents is a badge of honor. I used to say I was going to exactly. paper my walls exactly. with so them. I didn't feel so bad after that, right? Like, <laughs> okay. And, and then someone else said, well, nobody believes that if you only get five-star reviews, they figure they're all fake, so it's good to get some bad ones. I'm like, yeah, yeah, bring okay. you down, and bring you down a half a peg or so. Sellers like Gone Girl and going, oh, she got a one-star review, so I, I sort of felt like, you know, I'm in the company of Jillian Flynn and Gone Girl. Yeah, I know, and I, I loved Gone Girl and, and uh, the whole girl phenomenon that happened. Yeah. Um, I, I hate when that happens, when one title catches on so well that every author has to work it into their own title. But I will admit that I did love Girl on a Train. It was a great book. I, I really enjoyed I it, it and so did my yes. family, yeah. Let it Hey everyone, stay with us. When we come back, I'm going to talk with Judy about research for her novels. In the meantime, I've got a great anthology I'd like to tell you about titled Glowgrass and Other Tales by M.H. Calway. Revenge, guide dogs, cats big and small, beleaguered ladies of a certain age, troubled men, a cop with a tarnished heart, meet them here. The characters in these seven tales and two novellas are fighters. They fight for justice, even if their sense of justice is warped, but more often they must fight to save their own lives. Many of the stories in this collection have won or been shortlisted for major awards like the Derringer. Glowgrass was a finalist for the 2016 Arthur Ellis Award for Best Novella, and I can tell you it's a fantastic story by M. H. Calway. So I hope you'll look her up. M.H. Calway, you can find her on Amazon. And the collection is Glow Grass and Other Tales. And now, back to Judy. Now, fiction involves a lot of research. And I know that you've gone on some fact-finding missions along the way. Can you tell us some of the tidbits that you learned while researching for your novels and stories? Oh, sure. Like, probably the biggest one would be... um in the Glass Dolphin Mysteries, it's set in a town called Lounce Landing, which is loosely based on Holland Landing, where I lived for many, many years. But it's named at, the town is named after Samuel Lount, who was um, a 19th century politician hanged for treason. And I remember when I first moved to the landing, um, seeing this huge cla- a plaque um, honoring this, this man that had been hanged for treason, I thought, well, how odd that there's a plaque, you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to get it dedicated to a guy that was hanged for treason. So, you know, I, I researched all kind and what, what I could about him because I, I just found it fascinating. And um, so when I sent my, my book in the town, I was able to use a lot of that research. I mean, it's, it's under the surface for the most part, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, the, 
the title of the book, The Hangman's Noose, mm-hmm. that's the name of a pub, right? And it was named after the guy that was hanged for treason. So it all sort of tied together, right? Um, so yeah, so research to me is great fun and, and, and almost a danger to me because I can really lose a lot of days researching. You're not the first to say that, and certainly it's been my experience. I mean, I've lost myself in months, months I can never get back, doing nothing but researching for for works. And uh, I I think it's kind of the Achilles heel as well as the the blessing that a lot of writers have, that we do love our research. And truth is so much stranger than fiction. You can't write this crap. It's true. It's absolutely true. You can't. But yeah, I do enjoy research, and that's part of being in the antiques world, too. There's lots of research, but, um, yeah, you can definitely get to the point where you're, you know, you're looking up stuff like, was there a full moon on June 1st? Uh Uh-huh. I've actually done that. For Golden Fishes, my book opens with a full moon, and I had to make I thought that there had been a full moon. Something told me there had been, but it was based on a historical event, a very real historical event, and I had to be certain. And uh, so thank God for Google. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, we're so lucky. We're so fortunate today because just imagine the time when when you were going to the library to check everything out and maybe your library didn't have a very good collection or maybe you weren't in a big town, right? Yeah. Then you have to do it on a typewriter and there was carbon papers and liquid paper. I mean, just a lot. Oh, yeah. I I am (laughs) old enough. I'm old enough that I can remember when electric typewriters came into vogue and the one, there was a little typewriter I had, a little portable one that I took all my earnings and I went and I bought and it would display one line and you could choose to correct that one line, edit it before you entered it and it typed. Um, (laughs) and I thought that was just the cat's ass, I'm telling you, because I could actually edit that one line and not have to throw the entire page out, you know? Oh my gosh, that's funny. I know, and I think the thing only stayed in vogue for about a year, so that was a kind of a waste of my, my big earnings at the time, which were not very big. (laughs) You've also, uh, you've also contributed to a number of cookbooks, Judy, um. Now, how did you find your way into that? You've, you're in the uh, Bake, Love, Write, and you're in We'd Rather Be Writing. How did you get roped into that, and uh, do you have a passion for baking? No, it's, it's kind of a funny story because I am absolutely the worst cook in the world. Like no, you're not. No, you're not. Yeah. I can tell you. No, <laughs> no you're not I the worst. 95% of the cooking, right? And I am, like, when he's away, like, he's at our cottage right now, you know, I am definitely, like, a grilled cheese kind of person. Like, I, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm Campbell's just, soup over here, please. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> just not into cooking at all. And baking, I always say that's what bakeries are for, right? Like, mm. I, just, I don't even own a mixer. So, but Lois Winston, who is a, an um, USA Today bestselling author, and I've, I've gotten to know her through groups. I've actually never met her personally, but she decided to put together Bake Love Right, and she sent sent a call out and said, you know, does anybody want to put in a recipe and some, and then with it, some writing advice, and so I thought, oh, okay, like, so I I said to my girlfriend, you know, do you have a recipe? (laughs) You cheat, you cheat. Yeah, this is like a really good, like, easy cake so that anybody can make it, and I was like, okay, so I did that, and then the writing advice was easy, and then, um, years later Lois said well I want to do it again but I want to do like um easy recipes and that recipe is um it's called easy peasy vegetarian lasagna and that is actually one of my recipes I saw that one in the book yeah easy peasy easy peasy say it again easy peasy easy peasy vegetarian lasagna and that's in the we'd rather be writing cookbook yeah Yeah, I did see that one in there yeah your broccoli's looking a bit sad or whatever like you just <laughs> it's it a good way to hide like, the sorrow it's sort of like it's almost like a, the soup 
for lasagna or whatever, right? We just get rid of all your old veggies. It's, I mean, if you want, I'll send you the recipe. You can pin it up somewhere. All right, so, do that. Yeah, send me the recipe and let me pin it up. And uh, anybody listening out there, if you just want to have some gentle fun and maybe you want to get get uh, uh, jinky with the kitchen, look up Bake Love Right, and we'd rather be writing um, for yeah. great recipes by the renowned chef, Judy Penn-Shalak. <laughs> <laughs> it is so funny because um, in in um, the market film mysteries in the, in the book that's coming out this fall, um, it, my protagonist is, is making a, a tortier, and my husband's my beta reader, and he he started laughing. and Goes, where did you get this recipe? You, you wouldn't know how to make a tortier if you fell on one. <laughs> <laughs> I love and it. That's what Google is for. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, my ex-husband, uh, and he was he was a he was a decent man, but. Um, he was also a an international chef. Now he didn't work as a chef. He was an amateur chef, but um, he grew up in um, Louisiana in the Bayou, and he always told me that men in bars in Louisiana don't fight over women. They fight over the best way to cook duck a l'orange. <laughs> so. <laughs> and he was an exceptional cook. And anything that I do know about cooking, I learned from years of watching him. But my husband is not a cook, and neither am I. And my dear, long-suffering husband, Alec, he said the other day words that chilled my soul. He said, are we ever going to eat anything that isn't burned? <laughs> <laughs> and he's never complained in all these years. And I think I was held up probably editing a podcast and <laughs> Something had gone really wrong in the kitchen. You know? <laughs> yes, I, I, I can relate to that. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. Now, you're also not just a writer and not just a renowned baker, but uh, you're also a very active in Toronto's writing community. And um, I think you're working now with the CWC and you're you're consolidating the Arthur Ellis shortlist event, which is coming up. Um I think it will have already taken place by the time this podcast airs. Uh, it's coming up in April, is that right? Yeah, so the shortlist comes out uh, April 18th, mm -hmm. um, right across the country. The Toronto event is at Indigo at um, Young and Eglinton. And we're really excited because we have Elizabeth Duncan, um, who's won several, you know, She is a really fine lady, too. Yeah, I, I really like Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And Maureen Jennings is coming to read the shortlist. Oh, one of my favorite, favorite yeah, Canadian so writers is Maureen Jennings. Have, yeah, I think eight or nine um, CWC authors that will do two-minute elevator pitches, and about half of those are debut authors. So we're excited about that because you know what it's like when you're a debut author, you're terrified. And so oh, those two yeah. minutes gives them a bit of a chance to strut their stuff Without, yeah. in, a, in a friendly environment without having to do like a whole lot of prep work, right? Yes, so yes. it's just a great way to get the debuts sort of um, exposed to the harsh realities of yes. going to a bookstore and, and, and being ignored. <laughs> yes, yes. But Judy, I, I have to commend you. You're a very good speaker. And uh, I'm going to say something that's going to sound really weird to our listeners, but maybe you'll get it. I work in credit and collections, and I have for my pretty much my entire working career, which is very, very long. We're talking 41 years. There is something about cold calling people for money that makes public speaking appear in a whole other light. Um, public speaking has never frightened me. You know, I've always been quite comfortable uh, with public speaking, and I get the feeling that you have too. And I wonder whether... If you break the barrier where you can cold call people for money, whether that's like the barrier. Well, it's interesting because my background is credit and collections, right? I was I collected um, from businesses, though not people. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there are people behind the business. Of course, it, of course. It's not as it's not as personal as calling you, Don. No, right? no, no. Commercial collections is my forte as well, and I don't think yeah, I could do so retail. I, I did that for I'm, a good twenty five years, uh, and I learned early on that if I developed a, a personal relationship, if I was friendly, if I was, if I was um, interested in their business, that if they, when 
they did finally have money to pay, they would pay me before they'd pay someone else, yes. right? Because because they liked me. Yes. Um, so I think I think that relationship building is something I learned. As far as public speaking, no, I was terrified, terrified. I remembered you telling me that, and I, I you um, know, because you and I met in a parking lot. Um, we did a book drop. <laughs> in case in case the RCMP is listening. I did, yes, yes. Live free or die. <laughs> um, you know, we met in a parking lot doing a book drop. So if the RCMP is listening, that's where Judy and I met. Um, <laughs> but the the whole public speaking thing, you told me at the time that you were terrified. And so Alec had to read your story at our book launch. And um, I just sure don't get that from you today. I think you've come a long way, baby. I have. And I, I actually, it's funny to say that because... Um, I just finished doing the Ontario Library Association Super Conference for Crime Writers of Canada, and I was the MC there and introducing 23 authors and doing a little blurb myself, and it went beautifully. And I said to my husband afterwards, I said, you know, I'm so proud of myself because three years ago I could have never gone up on that stage, and now I forced myself to overcome that fear. And really what did it is shortly after the um, Alex reading episode, I was invited to the Wasaga Beach Public Library and went, and uh, it was quite dismal. There was like four people in the Oh, I wish you'd told me, because we're right near Wasaga. I would have come, yeah. Yeah, but I asked... You would have had five people. (laughs) Yeah, I asked the librarian to read for me, because I was so nervous, and she did a terrible job, and I thought... I can do better than that. Mm-hmm. I can do better than that. And so the next time I, I, I was invited to an event, I read and I thought, okay, it wasn't great, but it was better than that librarian at the mm-hmm. Wasaga Beach Public Library. And you know what I find? Rosemary McCracken said this to me. She said, in the beginning you'll be nervous, and, and after a while you'll look forward to it. And I'm at that point now where yeah. I'm excited to do it. But it takes, you know, it's, there's a learning curve for sure. There is, but, but that's true of everything really, we do. They want you to do well. They don't want you to fail. They no. don't want you to blow it. That's they right. They want you to do well. That's right. And that's true of almost everything we do. And I say this to my children. People want to help you. Give them a reason to want to help you. And that ties to your your talk about business relationship building. Um, I swear that that has been one of the biggest things that's helped me because I know how to reach out to people, and I want to reach out to people, and I want to see people do well. And that comes from my business background. I mean, I never went into collections wanting to find ways to screw over our customers. I mean, my approach was always, how can I help you get back on your feet? How can I help you meet your obligations and and run a business that you're proud of, you know? Exactly. And a lot of times it's just, you know, like developing payment plans and working with somebody, yeah, right, for yeah. solutions. I mean, I seldom talk I about know, that right? part of my life publicly, but it's true. It has lent me so much in both my writing and in my, my networking, which is an important part of being a writer, in, you know, my, my platforming. Um, I find I can, I don't have to work at being myself. I just am myself, you know? Absolutely. And I, well, think, I think that comes from the business. Yourself, the better it is, anyway. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's what people want to see. Sure, of course, of course. I mean, anybody anybody can put on a face, but people see through it pretty quickly. Now, tips for writers. Do you have any tips for new writers? It can be anything. Yeah, well, I always, always um, quote Agatha Christie, and I'm, I'm probably not going to quote her exactly right because I'll have to quote right in front of me, but her, she says, the, the day that I chose to treat this as a professional versus, versus an amateur. In other words, write every day, even if you're not writing particularly well, even if you don't particularly like what you're writing, as long as you're writing every day, mm-hmm. then you go from amateur to professional. And I believe that's true. We have to, you absolutely have to make time to write every day, even if you've only got five minutes. I think that's even absolutely true. And you've got a house full of people. Take five minutes, go into a room, and scribble down something, anything, a page of gibberish, just write every day because in so doing, you're letting your imagination or your muse or whatever else you want to call it, you know, hey, I'm up for this. I'm ready mm-hmm. and I want to do it. The worst thing we can do, it's, it's, I always say it's like writing, a, reading a book. If you, if you 
book and you read for two days and then you put the book aside for four days because you're busy doing whatever and you pick up that book again you're like oh i gotta start from the beginning i don't even remember what happened mm-hmm. the same when you're writing a book or a story like if you leave it for three or four days you've lost the thread yeah yeah that's very true that's that's very true and not only that but those of us who have worked for a living we don't get to say, well, today I'm probably not going to be very good at balancing my accounts, so today I'm not going to go in. You know. <laughs> so if you truly are looking at your art as a profession and as your business, you kind of have to run it that way, don't you? You do. You have to treat it like a business. And, and that may be, like for some people, they may say, okay, um, I'm going to write six days a week and I'm going to take every Sunday off. And sure. That's, you know, that's sure, that's quite hard. legitimate. Or I'm going to work four days and on the fifth day I'm going to do platform building or I'm going to do, uh, you know, all of these balances are all legitimate, but you've got to find what your balance is and you've got to treat it like that is your agenda. Absolutely. And, and even on your days off, there's things you can do, like you can read a book for research and, and it doesn't have to be a book that relates to you know your world that you're like it can I quite frankly feel if I read say a good John Sanford book to me that's research the man is a master at, mm-hmm. at, at pacing right so when I read one of his books I think wow like that's how it's done right it's just, mm-hmm. you know I, I would love to be able to pace a novel like like John Sanford or um, you know you read a Gone Girl and you think, wow, like, you know, she just broke yeah. every kind of rule and she got away with it, right? Yeah, you're just so, inspired. You're inspired. I, uh, even biographies. Are, uh, it inspires you. So, you know, even reading a book is is still participating in your craft, I yes. think. And, and actually, I think it's really important to read a lot. I, I think writers must read. I think so, too. And I think pe- writers who tell me they don't read, I um, I tend to mentally kind of put them into a different category. Sorry, but I just do. Uh, you can tell me that you don't read while you're writing. That's legitimate. And a lot of writers will tell you that they don't read while they're in the process, in the throes of something, a first draft, because they don't want to taint their current idea with something else coming in. But when you're not in that, the throes of that first draft, you must be reading. Absolutely. Reading is the best teacher. It yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Judy. It was really a pleasure having you on. And um, your voice is terrific, despite the cough. (laughs) Yes, it's it's been annoying three weeks and holding on strong. Well, I hope you feel better really soon. And uh, enjoy the rest of this weekend. At least we've got some mild weather going on. Yes, thank you so much for hosting me, Don. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I want to shoot out a huge thank you to Judy Penn Shalak for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. And happy Mother's Day to you, Judy. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at Carrick Publishing or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. You can find my husband, Alec Carrick, on Twitter, at Alex underscore Carrick, or on his website, www.alexcarrick.com. If you're a published author and would like to join our listeners on the pod, contact me anytime at CarrickPublishing at Rogers.com and just say, schedule me for an interview. If you've got a question for any of our authors or for myself, Donna Carrick, please feel free to use that same email address to send the question to me, and I'll be sure to raise it on the podcast. Join us next week when we'll bring you author Russell Parkway of The Demeter Code. Our Dead to Rights theme song, Eyes of Gold, and all story-scoring music is brought to you and performed by Ted Carrick. You can find Ted's original music at Ted Carrick Music on YouTube. Have a great Mother's Day, and we'll see you next week. Dusty road, 
man alone His vital signs go on hold And I don't know what you've been told But the years have turned my eyes gold And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides Let it rock